This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We've got two, almost, as Pfizer's COVID vaccines being administered at various hospitals. Moderna's vaccine is coming close behind. Also, we've had lots of conversations here about the challenge of picking the priority list for vaccinations. But this decision is especially tricky. Should prison inmates be among the first to be inoculated? Several commissions say they should, and we will wade into the debate. Could be a breakthrough in testing. The first at-home rapid test kit gets FDA approval. Plus, our DNA may hold clues into why certain people get very sick while others are asymptomatic. We'll speak with a researcher who says certain genes may make you more susceptible to getting a severe case of COVID-19. Do they have COVID at the North Pole? Will Santa and his helpers be able to get the presents out this year? We'll talk about how parents can answer those questions from their kids. But first, we start with Moderna on deck. The FDA has cleared the path for the Moderna coronavirus vaccine to reach final approval. And the initial reports on its effectiveness, very promising, not to mention it will be easier to handle for shipping compared to the Pfizer vaccine. Dr. Shane Crotty, virologist, professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. So looking at the data between these two, Moderna and Pfizer, looks like they're pretty much the same. What do you think? Exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost identical. Um, really impressive to have two huge clinical trials done by two independent entities and, and really get um, essentially 95% efficacy in both and, and almost no severe cases in, in, in either for, for vaccinated people. So yes, you're right. So what is the next step? They're going to have a similar kind of meeting that they had for Pfizer and then give it the uh, emergency use, at least we assume. Correct. So they've they've presented all the documents now, and those documents went uh, became available today. And then they'll they'll have that same type of open meeting um, where they have the debate. And and based on the data and, and the statements, it, it looks like it'll get the same uh, same uh, same approval as uh, as Pfizer for emergency use. Now there is uh, one other thing that it seemed to me the Moderna one uh, has in common with Pfizer, and that is unlike. Other vaccinations where if I go to my doctor and I get, you know, say the flu shot and I say, Doc, when do I need another one? And, and he says, uh, come back in a year. Uh, whether one gets the Pfizer one or the Moderna COVID shot, no one right can answer the question right now when you need it again, other than the, the second dose, of course. Absolutely right. Um, so it, it's I mean, it, it's been an incredible accomplishment, right? For like within the same calendar year to get a, a, a vaccine uh, phase three trial completed, it's the first time in human history, and have two of them and actually three of them successfully do that. That's great, and they work against severe. And, and it seems like all, all the subgroups, it works. And and you're totally right that the probably the biggest unanswered question now is durability. How long will these vaccines last? And the reason that's not known is that there's basically no historical reference point. There There is no already licensed RNA vaccine that's sort of been around around, around a while that we could see, okay, how long does it last? Um, the best Data was just uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine a week ago that, that indicated that, that something like 100 days out, the antibody titers were still looking pretty good. So the hope is the vaccine's good for at least a year. But at this point, uh, everybody has to wait and see. 
Remind us with the Moderna, I mean, we know the Pfizer one has to be kept incredibly cold. Is this the same kind of deal or is it a little bit easier in terms of how you store it when you roll it out? It's a little easier. Um, you're right. So it, it has to be generally stored very cold, but then um, uh, shorter term and in local settings, it can be uh, it, it can be stored in an, in an easier way. Yeah. Do you have any reservations about either, both, neither of these vaccines? It's a great question. I, I really don't. Um, I mean, uh, RNA, there are RNA vaccines. RNA is just the, the molecule that your body uses for temporary messages. I mean, at any point in time, your cells have like 5,000 different RNA messages in them. And they're, they're really like little post-it notes that are around for a few minutes or hours, and then they get torn up inside the cell. So the RNA vaccines are the same sort of short-term messages that teach your body how to respond to this virus. And really one of the benefits of, of the way these clinical trials were done is they were massive. I mean, there, there's almost no medicine you could point to that has as much safety data as, as these vaccines do now, because they've already given 70,000 doses, right, um, before, before going um, before now being being available. Um, yeah, it, it, it all it, it really does look very good. Dr. Shane Crotty, virologist, professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. The decisions on who gets vaccinated first in California still being made, but it's looking increasingly likely that both prison guards and the inmates they guard will be among the early recipients. Prisons, much like nursing homes, have been vectors for huge outbreaks of COVID-19. And that means that some people currently incarcerated for violent crimes will be inoculated against the coronavirus before, well, most of us. Alberto Gonzalez is dean of the Belmont University College of Law. He was a U.S. Attorney General under President George W. Bush, member of the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice. So let's take the scenario of someone who's committed a heinous crime, rolling up their sleeve, getting vaccinated while there's elderly people in the hospital. You know, they're on a ventilator. They can't breathe. They couldn't get priority. The optics of that, they're not good. Yeah, well, there's no question about it. I mean, I, I think you can always find examples to make arguments as to why someone should be vaccinated first before someone else. I get that. You're, there are going to be millions of examples. There's no question about that. Uh, and the one that you just gave me, I suspect that this 90-year-old grandmother who's in the ER gasping for air and about to die, that a vaccination wouldn't make a difference. But, but to your point, yes, uh, I can understand how some people might be upset by that. But those kind of decisions about who gets, who gets priority are going to be made all across the country on a variety of different reasons. And you're right. Some people are going to be upset about it, and others are going to be understanding and and we just try to move forward with the hope that eventually everyone's going to get vaccinated and we're going to minimize the loss of the loss of life in this country. Well, how do you explain it then to, to the people who don't understand? Or let's just take it. Let's dial this scenario back and take a 65 year old, 70 year old, 75 year old who's really been going nowhere in the last you know nine months. They've been pretty isolated at home and they're thinking why still does a prisoner who's done wrong you did a crime that's why you're there why did they get this when i still can't leave my house i mean by nature prisons deprive you of outside world things and this is now one of the things that is on the outside world and it should be for for us well i i, I would commend someone for who's taking the extraordinary step of not leaving the house for several months uh, obviously 
depending on the jurisdiction that they're in, uh, they could leave the house and if they exercise the appropriate protocols, could do so safely. I'm not suggesting they should do that when they believe they're safer at home, but but that that is certainly a possibility. And, and listen, I can't. You're you're right. I mean, th- th- some people are going to say, "Well, this is this this isn't right. Uh, this person has committed a crime." Well, the person is their debt to society is being paid by by being placed in prison. And so, do we add on top of that the increasing the risk that because of the facility that they are in, that in fact it becomes a death sentence for them? Uh, so they have limited control, while while the rest of us in society have more control, perhaps not total control, but certainly have more control about the environment we live in and have the ability to, I think, better increase the chances that we can avoid getting something like COVID. Alberto Gonzalez, Dean of the Belmont University College of Law. He was a U.S. Attorney General under President George W. Bush, member of the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice. Thanks. COVID testing has been problematic since the very start of this pandemic, and once again, a huge demand for testing meant big delays in getting results. But that could all change thanks to a new home testing kit just got approved. Dr. Bruce Tromberg directs the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering within the National Institutes of Health. So what do we know about this new test so far? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Well, the the test is a, a rapid antigen test. It's packaged in a very nice compact plastic package, and uh, it's made by a company called Illum. It will be available for over-the-counter use. That means you'll be able to buy it at a drugstore or perhaps uh, buy it mail order, or your your company may be actually purchasing these and using them for employees. And it gives an answer in less than 20 minutes, around 15 minutes or so, and um, it connects to your smartphone. So it's all packaged together and the smartphone helps you with the sampling. It gives you instruction, and then it collects the information from the test cartridge itself. Uh, how many of these units are they making? Because why do I keep thinking in a country that still has toilet paper shortages that this at-home test is going to be hard to get once it's available? Well, they're gearing up manufacturing, and we've supported them for uh, every phase of development from the early stages uh, through the validation and, and the proof of the proof of actual the efficacy of the test and now for the manufacturing expansion and within the first couple of months of the year they'll be making somewhere between three and four million tests and then they'll be scaling up to somewhere between four and five million tests per month after that for this particular company the efficacy as you're talking about how how good is this test it's not going to be as sensitive as, as something you would do in the lab so in what cases would someone want to use this correct so th- this is a a quick lateral flow assay it's called a viral antigen test they're not as sensitive as the laboratory test the the so-called rt-pcr lab tests or um, necessarily as sensitive as the point of care pcrs but this is going to be fairly it's going to be pretty inexpensive although i don't know what their price point is but um it should be quite accessible um, and it's fast. Uh, and it, it, the performance is actually very good for measuring infectiousness. So those other tests are very, very good, very sensitive for measuring the presence of viral material, uh, viral RNA, but that's not always necessarily correlated with your infectiousness. So that's why viral antigen tests are actually quite good. They can assess quickly 
Uh, you can use them multiple times one day and then the next day and, you know, multiple days. So you can see if there's a change in your infectiousness status. But am I right that some tests are better for symptomatic people uh, than for asymptomatic people? What about this test? That's correct. So many of these uh, viral antigen tests are EUA, emergency use authorization from the FDA. These are granted for within some number of days of the onset of symptoms, typically around seven days uh, of symptoms. And, and this one works the best uh, within about a week of the onset of symptoms. However, it does also work reasonably well, uh, even if you don't have symptoms. And uh, for people who are interested, I, I, I definitely recommend that you check out their website and check out the FDA information that's available. It's all very, very uh, nicely uh, online and you can see its actual performance. But let's just say it's, um, it's one of the best performing viral antigen tests that we've looked at in our RADx uh, program. And if you are asymptomatic and it still flags you, this is that scenario we see where that's when you probably go and schedule an appointment to get one of the, the lab tests to make sure. That's correct. You need a backup confirmatory test, particularly if you're in a setting where there's very, very low prevalence of the virus. That's where you run into a chance of a positive being a false positive if there just are not that many cases around you. But um, in, in the presence of some symptoms uh, within about a week or so, uh, these tests perform comparable in terms of their sensitivity and specificity uh, being in the mid to high 90s uh, as laboratory tests. And the thing to remember is it's really hard to get an FDA emergency use authorization for an at-home test. This is the very first one, uh, at-home sorry, at-home over-the-counter test. This is the second one that's at home. Uh, the first one was issued about a month ago for a PCR test that's fully at home. This is different from just collection kits there at home. This is actual, the test goes to your home with you. Dr. Bruce Tromberg directs the National Institutes of Biomedical Imaging, Bioengineering within the National Institutes of Health. Doctor, thanks. Will Santa Claus be able to travel from the North Pole during the pandemic? Plus, not all bodies are created equal when it comes to reactions to COVID-19. That after a short break. You're listening to Coronavirus Daily on Radio.com. This has been an underlying question since the coronavirus pandemic began. Why do most people who get infected have fairly mild cases of COVID-19, while some people who don't have comorbidities come down with critical cases? We know that if you're older and have other health issues, chances of you getting a bad case of COVID are high. But what's to explain younger, healthier people who get infected and get really sick? Might depend on your DNA. There's new research out of the United Kingdom looking into this. Dr. Conrad Rollick, research scientist at the University of Edinburgh's Roslyn Institute. Doctor, thanks for being here. Thank you. Glad so, to be here. So let's talk about DNA. Uh, I mean, I suspect most people think that whether one gets ill with almost any disease, it has something to do. You know, people say, oh, it's in your genes. In this case, it is, maybe, right? Well... <laughs> It's not quite that simple. Um, so I didn't think it would we, be, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually what we looked at um, were differences between um, people who basically came down with um, in ICUs, so who had um, kind of very severe COVID and people who um, basically didn't get ill. 
And we found some differences between them in the DNA. But the important thing is these are not differences which are kind of unique to the people who get critically ill. Um, we just found that at certain places where there's common variation in the population, so where, say, 30% of people will have a letter A and um, the rest will have a letter C in their DNA, just in the general population, um, the people who were critically ill were more likely um, than the healthy people to have one of these two variants. So with that information, yeah, well, what, yeah. what do we do with that? Well, so... So the the nice thing we can do with that is um, we used other data to look at whether, say, the people who had the A variant um, also had higher expression of certain genes. And we found that for some genes, um, those people did indeed have higher or lower expression. Um, and what that means is that these people, before they even were exposed to COVID on average, um, were... Um, had different levels of expression of these genes, which suggests that maybe the difference in expression um, was a contributing factor to them getting more ill. And the nice thing is that some of the genes we found, we actually have pre-existing drugs to regulate the levels of these genes. So that allows us to kind of fast track these already approved drugs and test them in um, kind of real conditions on real patients in randomized trials to see whether they actually work. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, how does this apply in the clinical setting? Uh, if somebody, you know, calls up their physician and says, I'm in a certain risk group and I'm worried about if I get COVID, am I going to get a serious case or not? Is there some practical clinical thing that can be done with this info, at least at this stage? Yeah, so not with people who are not severely ill yet, but um, the hope is that these drugs can basically be used for people who get into an ICU and have a um, kind of severe variant of COVID, and they can be used to reduce the fatality rate in those people because um, they are basically drugs which hopefully target specifically the things which are different in those people to the general population, which might lead to them having a severe outcome. And this would be going after the inflammation and drugs that would work better on some people than others yeah. just because of the way that their bodies would respond to it. Yes. Um, it's not that their bodies would specifically respond differently. It's just that we have indication that in those people who do get into ICU, they might get into ICU because they have a kind of a predisposition to express these genes more or less. But there will be people who express these genes more or less due to many other reasons not related to genetics. What the genetics allow us to do is to find these genes and to select the drugs which we know target these genes and apply them to all the people who come in because we kind of hope that by reducing the levels of these genes, we can prevent them um, getting more severe. And, and doctor, the, these drugs that are, you mentioned, currently available, are they sort of really expensive esoteric medicines or are these pretty... No, as far as I know, not. Um, I'm not actually a medic. Um, I'm a um, geneticist. And so you would have to talk to the actual medics to know how expensive these drugs are. But from my understanding, they are not expensive. Um, I have to add, though, that while we kind of can find these drugs and suggest them as good candidates, they first have to be validated in actual trials. 
um, to see whether the, the effect we predict actually manifests in real life. So this is a kind of way to shortcut through all the safety trials because we know these drugs are already safe because they're being used in other conditions and move straight to trials of their effectiveness. Dr. Conrad Rollick there, research scientist, University of Edinburgh's Roslyn Institute. You know, some days you walk in here and you're reminded that you're not like a super smart geneticist. <laughs> that is my day today. What is this, December 15th? <laughs> Mark that in your calendar, right? Yeah, okay. There won't be big caroling sessions. There won't be large gatherings of families lighting candles together. And, well, and maybe there won't be a photo shoot with a shopping mall Santa Claus this year's holiday celebrations will be like no other. So how can parents explain to their children this year's holiday celebrations will look and feel different? Matt Leon at KYW spoke with Dr. Jennifer Rich, assistant professor of sociology at Rowan University. She shared tips on how to talk to your kids about the pandemic holidays and St. Nick. How much has all they've seen from the sidelines and experience kind of put an imprint, you think, on them? I think that... We can take all of the pandemic fatigue we're feeling as adults and know that our kids are feeling something that's very similar, if not the same. And they're feeling the same sort of fatigue with their routines being changed, um, being indoors more than usual and filtering it through a lens of lack of understanding, right? It's hard for us, I think, to understand what's been going on, to understand the consequences of the pandemic that are still ongoing, to recognize that nine months later, we're still in the same situation as we were in April and know that our kids feel the same way, but understand it even less than we do. So I think that our kids are struggling. I think the bright side is, if there is one, Maybe our kids will be more resourceful, able to figure out what to do when they're bored, able to entertain themselves a little bit differently or come up with creative solutions to problems because they're inside. I don't think there's actually a bright side to the pandemic, but I think if we're looking for a silver lining, perhaps our kids are learning resilience in a different way than, than they were before. How do you approach the concept of Santa Claus in a worldwide pandemic how do you approach we do the elf on the shelf in our house you know we don't know where the elf's going when he leaves at night like it sounds kind of uh flippant but these are important topics i think that i feel like we're kind of in a minefield with talking about this stuff of where we go too far in any direction what would be your advice well how would you approach I think there are probably two options that I can think of. Um, the first is fall back on, on what I'm making air quotes, you know, what the science tells us. And Dr. Fauci has said on, on record that Santa and the elves have special innate immunity and are safe from coronavirus, um, which I think is, is one answer. And I think the fact that we have arguably our nation's top medical advisor, um, Helping us understand that that Santa and the elves are special is is one way to handle it. Um, I think we can also tell kids who are used to social distancing that Santa and the elves are social distancing up at the up at the North Pole. They've been quarantining. They're still social distancing though, and therefore 
there might be fewer elves up on the North Pole right now making fewer presents, which leads into, if you need it, a conversation about why gifts might be um, the pared down this year. So I think there are a couple of ways to handle it. Um, certainly reassuring kids that Santa and the elves and the reindeer are safe and healthy and we don't need to worry about, about their health, I think is, um, is most important. One, one thing we don't wanna do is make kids even more fearful about this time by having them worry about Santa. We did something, we had one day our elf quarantined and he showed up in a Tupperware container <laughs> with a little note that said he was quarantining. Is that something, you know, I, I think he did it for fun, but uh, is it, should we separate the real world from this stuff or is it good to work in and kind of normalize? I guess going along with your previous answer. Yeah, you know, uh, look, we all know our, our own kids best. Um, I think that normalizing what's going on as best we can is really important, right? It's um, having your elf quarantine is modeling really good habits for kids. And, you know, when we come from somewhere else, if we're seeing other people, it's really important to, to be safe and to keep the people that we watch and love and, and live with safe. And so I think the more figures who are able to, to sort of model that appropriate pandemic behavior, the better off we are. And, you know, maybe the elf doesn't leave your house at night the way he normally might. But instead this year, you know, everyone gets their own, their own elf. You know, I think there are lots of ways to to help kids think about that. But I think continuing to stress the fact that there's good and healthy behavior during the pandemic, we follow it. And so does everybody who's going to be involved with Christmas, including Santa, is really important. You can find us on Radio.com, the app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.